Shalom and welcome back to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Eli Koaz. Now, it's been a very eventful few days, with the top story obviously being President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris's victory on Election Day last Tuesday. Despite President Trump's refusal to accept defeat, we'll almost certainly have a new administration take office in January 2021. Now, all of this happening at a time with the COVID-19 pandemic out of control and a record number of cases being recorded both in the United States and around the world. Now, yesterday, the virus claimed the life of Secretary General of the PLO, Saeb Erekat. Erekat, who is most well-known as Chief Palestinian Negotiator, was a very influential figure in the history of the PLO. And his passing raises questions about the future of direct Israeli-Palestinian negotiations and a whole lot of other things. So to further discuss Saeb Erekat, his life, significance, and the road forward um, for the Palestinians without him, I'm joined by Nimrod Novik. Now, Nimrod is Israel Policy Forum's Israel Fellow, as many of you know, a longtime senior advisor to Shimon Peres, and someone who's been very involved in Israeli-Palestinian negotiations in the past, mostly track two. Um, but he's also was quite close with Saeb Erekat, and uh, it's great to have him on to, to talk about Saeb. So Nimrod, thank you very much for, for joining us. My pleasure. Now, Nimrod, um, I know you've told me some stories about you and Saeb, but the one that I remember is that I, I think your kids went to uh, Seeds of Peace, a Israeli-Palestinian uh, camp promoting coexistence and tolerance. And I know there are other stories, but maybe you can you start by just telling us a little bit about uh, your relationship with him. You know, it's a nice place to start because um, the experience at the seeds, one specific experience at Seeds of Peace tells you so much about Saib and how he raised his, his four children. Uh, three of the four, as you said, were uh, attended the Seeds of Peace, uh, the camp in Maine, um, that has activities between summers as well. Um, and so did my son, my uh, younger son. Um, and um, uh, his, his, uh, uh, one of his twin daughters uh, was at the camp uh, during that awful summer uh, in the sec- during the Second Intifada when there was a um, suicide uh, bomber exploded himself in the middle of the Mahana Yehuda market in the heart of Jerusalem. And there were scores of casualties, deaths, and, and injured. Um, when the news reached uh, the camp in Maine, uh, the Seeds of Peace camp, his daughter ran into the center of the uh, camp, to the center square, and lowered the Palestinian flag to half mask. That was a spontaneous reaction of a girl who grew up in the summer, in the, in the cyber record. Uh, home. And that was Saib. He was totally committed to the peaceful resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and in only one way, a two-state solution. He dedicated his life to it. Uh, on occasion, he, risks, he risked his life for it because as a man of peace, he was courageous in opposing violence 
And at the time that many members of the Palestinian peace camp lost their direction, um, and uh, when spirits gone crazy during the Second Intifada, he was among the very few who went from one branch of the uh, Tanzim, the, uh, uh, the young generation of uh, Fatah, uh, and urging them to stop it, counterproductive, this is not our way. Uh, he was considered a traitor at the time, and yet he never stopped and never yielded um, on, on this issue of exclusively non-violence pursuit of a two-state solution. This didn't make him a pushover. He was a tough negotiator. And at times he drove us crazy uh, with insisting on things we thought were not necessarily essential. Uh, but his non-violence was unyielding. It was a religious, a secular religious with him. Yeah, no, that's that's I, that sounds completely right to me. I mean, one thing that struck me, I obviously have not had as many interactions with him as you, but I've met him on several occasions, um, was this eternal sense of optimism and belief that two states uh, was still possible. I mean, my the times that I've met him were more recently. And I mean, even uh, during the last few years when the Israeli government looked a lot more likely to advance annexation than anything near two states. Erkat, he believed so strongly that two states, two states was possible, despite trends on both sides going in the other uh, direction. And I mean, I think that's reflected in Tsipi Livni. She wrote, uh, she wrote her condolences. She wrote that she was in contact with Saib when he was sick, and he, he responded saying he's, he was not finished uh, with doing what he was born to do. So can you touch on this like optimism and where it came from? Because, I mean, so many um, other like Palestinians have also, people involved in nego negotiations have lost faith and lost hope uh, in two states over the years. What do you attribute that, that to? Okay, let, first let me reinforce uh, Tipi Livni's uh, uh, account uh, by my own. Mm -hmm. Um, when he, uh, as you know, uh, he underwent um, a, lung a double transplant, lung yes. trans transplant in, in uh, Maryland. Um, during that period, just before the operation and after the operation, I traveled especially to visit him at the hospital. And on both occasions, he said the same thing. Um, he said he's going to beat it because he's a man on a mission, and there's only one mission. And that he said on the eve of the operation, frankly, I was concerned that he's not going to survive it. It's, it's quite an operation. Uh, and he said the same thing when he came out of it, um, and not just came out, but everybody at the hospital told him uh, that he broke records uh, in terms of speed of recovery. Um, and, and he repeated the same thing. He attributes everything to the fact that he's a man of, 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 on a mission. Um, and the same, uh, you know, the day before he was hospitalized, um, when he was moved from home to hospital with COVID-19, the day before, uh, we were uh, 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 um, working the details 
of his first visit to Washington and New York to meet with the Biden team the day before he was hospitalized. Wow. So when you ask, where does it come from? I would say it has two sources. Uh, one is emotional, one is rational. The emotional is the commitment to his children and their generation. But he's free, obviously his children first and their generation. Um, he refused to accept that another generation uh, will grow up with no hope for independence and end of the occupation. In its most daily routine manifestations. That was emotional. Rational, he understood us Israelis better than some of us understand ourselves. He understood when the, the moment will come when we will realize that the only alternative to uh, a separation into two states is unification in one. And he knew, he had no doubt, that Israelis will never agree to be a minority in their own country. So he knew it was coming. He wanted it to come before the awakening is triggered by bloodbath. In, one was enough, the second intifada. Um, and um, so his mission was to try and bring leadership to make that decision, not after the bloodbath and the awakening, but rather to avoid it. So that was the rational foundation. Um, and as an expert in the details, he knew that it's doable. He knew that the skeptics who say it's too late um, are talking superficial, are looking at it in a very superficial way, uh, and are not versed with what's going on, the, on, the, in the, on the ground and why it is uh, still a viable uh, option. Uh, without, without, you know, diluting the, the difficulties. I mean, he, he, nobody understood the difficulties more than he, uh, but he knew it was doable. And Nimrod, um, before we talk about like the future um, with him not not here and how that looks for the future of ne negotiations, um, from a professional perspective, what moment do you remember from your professional career um, about about something with Saib? Um, I mean, you were mentioning to me before Y River memorandum, and during that time, is there anything else you'd like to you'd like to share before we move on to to today? Yes, I I think I would like to first uh, put Saib in context, in his Palestinian context. Um, ironically, if you wish, Saib lacks two items on his resume, on his uh, CV. Uh, he was not in Tunisia. He remained in Palestine when they were away, all the PLO players. And that's a shortcoming in Palestinian politics. Uh, he was an outsider to those who came uh, from Tunisia. 
And second, because he was a man of peace, he never spent time in Israeli prison. And to be a fighter for peace, one has to have the credentials of having fought for it by violent means. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of popularity, right? I mean, in terms of popularity, right now you have in all the the polls that uh, poster Khalil Shakaki does, in many of them it shows Marwan Barghouti as the most popular uh, potential uh, leader of the Palestinian people, and he he's in Israeli jail at the moment. So that just shows how important that is for for Palestinians. That's right. That's right. So. Here is a guy who doesn't have the, so to speak, for, uh, uh, formal credentials, um, doesn't have a political base. His only base was Jericho, where he was considered, you know, the local sheriff. Everybody loved him, everybody admired him, everybody respected him. But that's a small town basis type thing. Uh, so his power came from his talent and personality. Um, and, and few survived the transition from Arafat to Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, uh, the way he did. Both of them um, ended up totally dependent on him in terms of navigating negotiations with Israel. And the two of them who, are, who have been, I mean, Arafat and, and Abu Mazen, such, a, such different type leaders and characters, uh, and yet he managed uh, to uh, get to the point where neither uh, could consider negotiations without him at the center of it. Uh, and that's due to his um, communicating skill. He knew how to talk to Israelis, to Americans, to the international community. Um, and most of them don't really know how to do that effectively. Uh, he had a, 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 an absolute memory. He remembered every clause in every document ever signed, ever drafted by the Palestinian Negotiating Committee, the uh, uh, unit that, that he established and, and headed as chief negotiator. Every document. I mean, on the Israeli side, foreign ministers, special envoys, um, peace team coordinators have been coming and going and changing. And on the Palestinian side, there was always one, always cyber attack. Around him, there were others, obviously. Abu Mazen, even before he became president or even prime minister. Uh, Abu Allah, uh, who was with uh, our team in, in Oslo. Um, quite a few. Uh, Dahlan at the time, Jibril Ajub at the time, and, and others. But always, always, at the center of it all was Saib, who knew everything there was to, there, there is to know and who, who was the chief drafter of everything, because the leader always knew that if he drafted a clause, he already took care of that leader's concerns. But the, 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 the lead up to the White River episode was shed light on another side of side. Uh, uh, Arafat was a very difficult character. Um, I mean, you could reach with him an agreement and shake hands and the following day forget it like it never happened. Uh, a word was not a word. A commitment was not a commitment. 
Um, and and we, when we were working, uh, we used to meet at the, at the residence of the Egyptian ambassador. Um, on our side, it was Chaim Ramon, Yossi Belin, and myself. And on the Palestinian side, it was Abu Mazen and Saiba Rekha. From time to time, they would bring a third person, sometimes Dahlan, sometimes someone else. Um, and we used to develop the concept that later on Madeleine Albright embraced, and it became White River Agreement and White River Meeting Summit. Uh, and as we were working on it, time and again and again, uh, they would take meticulous notes of what we are agreeing. They go to, uh, to uh, Arafat in order to sell him on what we had uh, discussed. Arafat, who used to meet with them between uh, 12 midnight and 2 a.m., uh, which was his style, um, would start uh, kicking and screaming and rejecting and eventually saying yes. And by morning, we had to start all over again. Now, Nimrod, before, Nimrod before, we, before you continue, just for our listeners that aren't aware about the Y River Memorandum, this was uh, the continuation of the Oslo II Agreement in 1995, right? When... Um, that was Netanyahu was actually prime minister at the time. Netanyahu was prime minister, and in White River, Netanyahu committed to two things, and he uh, did not deliver on both. Uh, one was to transfer another thirteen percent of the West Bank uh, to the Palestinian Authority of Area C, uh, what is now Area C, right? Still Area C, precisely part of Area C. Um, and the other thing that he committed to is to release prisoners. Uh, by the time he landed back home, uh, he uh, got cold feet on both. Uh, so the first one he did not fulfill. And the second one, uh, instead of releasing the kind of prisoners that the Palestinians had expected, uh, he released car thieves and, and other small-time uh, uh, criminals. Um, but I, I, when I was looking on the, on the Palestinian side, uh, what what Saeb, Abu Mazen was less less of a less of a, a powerful uh, persuader vis-a-vis uh, Arafat uh, than Saeb. He knew how to sell him on these things, and although he was so difficult and he took so long, eventually he got him to agree uh, to what eventually was agreed to uh, in, uh, in 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 Y River. Um, um, another person who be, who became later later became a very close friend uh, of Saeb uh, um, when he was during his tenure as special uh, coordinator and envoy for the peace process. Uh, Martin Indyk was the uh, U.S. ambassador at the time, uh, and as an ambassador, he was not uh, supposed to be privy to our Rye River discussions. So whenever Saeb and Abu Mazen's car would pull out, his car would pull into the Egyptian embassy in order to get the full report of what we were conspiring for. Turning to uh, some other specific issues, there are obviously uh, disagreements that I'm sure you had with Saeb and that a lot of Israeli negotiators had with Saeb over the years. Let me give you a specific one. Yes, okay. One when I went crazy. Um, when we were talking Jerusalem, Saeb started with this Palestinian nonsense 
that the temple was never on Temple Mount. Now, Saib was a totally secular person, hostile to Hamas approach uh, to religious, um, insisting on Fatah remaining a secular movement and dominant secular Palestinian polity. Um, and, and he started with this Arafat shtick uh, of uh, there was never a Temple Mount, and they, you, you, come on, this is only uh, Islam's uh, holy place, and so on. And we had a shouting match. Um, and, and in that shouting match, I told him basically two things. One was, um, I, I think I have more evidence that my temple was there than you do that uh, Muhammad's horse stopped there for a minute on the way to heaven. <laughs> and the second thing I told him is, regardless of what you think of my belief, how dare you challenge it? Who are you to challenge the Jewish tradition, the Jewish conviction? I'm not talking about the evidence. Leave the evidence alone. But this is my conviction. How dare you? Well, he, he never repeated that. But he had this thing that from time to time he will come up with something that will drive you crazy. And only in retrospect, you, you ask yourself, why did he do it? What, what did he really want to accomplish? Because none of it um, was without a thought. And uh, you always find out that he wanted a certain concession that he thought that he couldn't get any other way. But you hear stories like this from every negotiator, from every, every Israeli negotiator who sat across the table from him. Yeah, of course. And something that's more relevant today which I've seen um, some people write about in his involvement is uh, what's called by some the pay, pay for slay policy, or the Palestinians call it the, the martyrs fund, which is money that goes to uh, the families of uh, terrorists who are in Israeli jails, terrorists that have been killed. It also goes to criminals that are in jails and such. What uh, would you say to those people accusing Saib of having a uh, part in this policy and not standing against it. It's still a major uh, sticking point when it comes to uh, negotiations with the Palestinians and uh, confidence-building measures. I'll say three things about it. One, um, child was in elementary school when this started. So he had nothing to do with it starting and becoming a tradition. And becoming something that uh, the families and most most Palestinians consider an entitlement uh, that nobody can touch. Um, the second thing I'll say about it is um, on every there were two there were there were two sides throughout. We spoke earlier on the fact that he had no political base and that. It was his personal talent that created the credentials. Absent the political base, his public posture had to be more extreme than most. 
That was his political bulletproof vest internally. He had to express himself in ways that make Israelis that much more uncomfortable and give him credentials of a patriot among Palestinians. The other side was inside the room, inside the negotiating, and even more so in the real privacy of the kind of friendship and partnership that he had with me and, and with quite a few of my colleagues here. Um, you know, the, 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 the usual suspects of the peace process of the last 30 years. Um, in private, he was very pragmatic, uh, off the record and in ways, in, in, in forms that are not binding, uh, where he can test ideas. He was very pragmatic and flexible and creative. But in the negotiating room, so there were three sides as a matter of fact. In the negotiating room, he was the lawyer of his client. He was as loyal to, uh, uh, to, the, to the brief that he got from uh, Arafat first and Abu Mazen second, would not yield on it in front of the Israeli formal negotiator. Uh, but we'll go back home and try to fight for things that the, the Israeli negotiation was, negotiator was sure that he objected to. So you had Saib in public who is tough and provocative. You have Saib in the negotiations, the formal negotiations, who sticks to the brief, but negotiate more with his boss than with the Israeli in order to get some leeway in order to move forward, inside the very private, who was as flexible and uh, creative uh, as they come. You know, you mentioned the so-called pay for slay. Um, nobody understood better than he that they have to change it. Nobody would protect it more um, fiercely in public than he. And nobody will try to get ideas from Israelis, from Americans, from Europeans, from Palestinians, looking for uh, ideas as to how to change it. In a way that would be accepted by the Palestinian pu public, or at least... In a way that will square the legitimate claim that it can be perceived as encouraging terrorism, and yet will be acceptable uh, in the Palestinian uh, public environment. You know, the, the second accusation lays, laid against him was that nobody pushed harder for the Palestinians to sue Israel in the um, International Criminal Court. It, it, it drove Israelis crazy. And, and we talked about it a lot. And time and again, he told me the same thing. I wrote it today on Twitter without attributing it to him. Because I didn't have his permission. But I feel with his passing, maybe I should be less strict about it. He told me, look, what other nonviolence means does the weak Palestinian have at his disposal 
in, in order to get the attention of the powerful Israeli who is backed by the most powerful superpower. When his brothers have given up on him, the Arabs, and he's trying to get attention and, and get somebody to do something to change the status quo. What other instruments do I have at my disposal other than going to the ICC? The alternative is violence. I will not go for there. I will not tolerate it. I will fight against it. But when I go with peaceful means, I'm being accused as a diplomatic terror, terrorist. Well, so be it. Nimrod, before, before we wrap up, um, you spoke about talking with Saib uh, before he was hospitalized about planning a visit to meet the uh, new uh, U.S. administration or at least elements of it that would deal with the Israeli-Palestinian issue. His absence now from um, the Israeli-Palestinian, from the future of negotiations, where does it leave the Palestinians? I mean, they relied on him, as you said. Isra Israeli negotiators uh, switched almost every round of negotiations, but he was there at every round of negotiations. So the next round of negotiations will be without Saber Akat um, when it does happen. What does it mean for the Palestinians? What does it mean for the future of uh, the peace process? Uh, what does it mean for in the near term? I don't see anyone there to fill uh, his hole like right away or anyone that can just step in. And also, does it mean maybe it's time for a change uh, in approach from the Palestinians when it comes to negotiations? Uh, you mentioned how Saib was just such a like, lawyer kind of for for his client, just very loyal to, obviously, to Abbas and to Arafat. Um, what, what, what's your opinion? I think you're right on both counts. Uh, I think you're right. You know, there is this cliche that the cemeteries are full of people who 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 were irreplaceable. Um, Saib is irreplaceable. He is, he's really the exception. Um, he's irreplaceable. Nobody can take his place. There's nobody around, as you said. Uh, nobody knows what he does. Nobody has the experience. I'm not sure that, that there are many with, 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 with the kind of commitment and, and, and drive. Um, his access, uh, everybody knows him, no matter who is the next team on the Biden administration dealing with it, they would all have known him uh, and he could uh, hit the ground running uh, with them. Uh, and the same goes in the region, in Europe, everywhere. Uh, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, he trained the whole generation uh, in this NSU, the, the uh, negotiation support unit. Uh, he trained two generations uh, of young, capable, uh, creative, talented uh, individuals, uh, and maybe, um, maybe one, and probably more likely several of them, uh, will emerge jointly as the next side, uh, each one fulfilling part uh, of the um, of the uh, portfolio uh, that he covered alone. Maybe there will be there this one change that you alluded to. I mean, there are two kinds of negotiators. Uh, the one that is the lawyer of his client and he sticks to the brief, 
And the other one will understand that his job is to stretch the envelope and go beyond his instructions and try things on the other side and then go back and try to sell them uh, to the um, to the um, to the president, to the leader. Uh, side did both, uh, but uh, in the negotiations, he was more the lawyer uh, than uh, the one who would stretch the envelope the way, say, that Yossi Balin or Shlomo Ben Ami uh, did on the Israeli side as opposed to others who stuck to the brief and and would not change anything, uh, which is mostly a prescription for failure. So maybe some of the young uh, chaps that he trained uh, will end up creating um, a, a strong, young, fresh look at things uh, and maybe also uh, with a view that they negotiate on two fronts. They negotiate with the Israelis on the one hand and with their own leader on the other, if they want a deal. With that, uh, Nimrod, I'd like to thank you so much for, for joining us and for sharing such really amazing insights on a, on a pivotal figure uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian arena. And obviously, Israel Policy Former sending our condolences to, to his family um, and uh, Nimrod, uh, thank you. Thank you for joining us and hopefully uh, more podcasts on uh, on better, happier uh, occasions. With your permission, Eli, I also want to again convey my sincere condolences to his wife, Naame, uh, to his daughter, Dalal and Salam, to his son, Ali and Muhammad, and to the entire family. Thank you again, Nimrod, and thank you to all our listeners. And before we close, a special word from our policy director, Michael Koplow. Hi, I'm Michael Koplow, Israel Policy Forum's policy director. Each week, I write about the most pressing issue shaping the conversation on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the U.S.-Israel relationship, American Jewry, and everything in between. Visit www.israelpolicyforum.org to sign up to receive my column in your inbox every Thursday morning and read past issues. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and have a great week.